0: This is a Triple J podcast.
1: Hack.
0: Hey, it's Tim Shepard with you for the Hack podcast. How much would you be willing to spend on a second-hand piece of clothing at an op shop? A hundred bucks? What about two hundred? Does it depend on what it is or where the money's going? Because the price of second-hand clothes is going up as more of us shop at vintage stores or buy and sell our clothes online. And look, it's good for the environment, of course. We're reusing and we're recycling. But it has meant that some charity shops have been charging a lot more for clothes that have been donated to them. So is that fair? We're also going to talk about the rise in men playing netball and what that means for the sport. But first... Hack. It's not like getting your hair cut. These are procedures that actually carry risks. On Triple J. Yeah, you might have noticed that a lot more of your mates are getting some work done. Fillers, Botox or other injectables. I mean, maybe you have yourself. Some people love being able to change something about the way they look, but sometimes it can lead to some really bad experiences. Here on Hack, we've covered things going wrong in the cosmetics industry quite a bit. Let us know your experience, good or bad. You can text in on 0439 757 or call in 1300 5536 Well, now the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency or APRA reckons it's cracking down includes new guidelines for advertising, so making sure that people aren't being misled about how something will look, and making sure that patients are being made aware of the risks involved. But what about the people performing these procedures? In the last year, there have been about 180 formal complaints about practitioners, so does there need to be more regulation in place? Professor Charlotte Hesby is the New South Wales and ACT Chair of the Royal Australian College of GPs. Charlotte, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks, Tim. Look, I want to know what you think about this announcement from APRA. Do you think it goes far enough?
2: Um, from the Royal Australian College of GPs perspective, our big emphasis is on patient safety. And so it's about making sure that whatever regulations put Uh, put in place really do make sure that people understand what they're actually undergoing, what the risks are, the skills of the practitioner who's doing it, and making sure they really understand what it is that they want afterwards. Um, Because I think a lot of the time people don't really understand, in particular, the long-term consequences of some of these um, procedures, particularly the injectables. Um, and They're also being done by practitioners who, from my perspective, are not necessarily as well-trained as they should be um, in both doing what they're doing and then monitoring and doing the whole consenting, et cetera. So, So yes, I think a lot more things need to be done, but sensible things, not red tape for the sake of red tape.
0: Right. Well, I want to get into what has been suggested and, and about uh, by APRA. So one element of this crackdown is something called informed consent, which you sort of just mentioned earlier. Can you explain that and why that's important?
2: So informed consent is when um, the, the person who's about to have a procedure done is provided with all the information about that procedure, which includes not just the things that they're wanting um, to actually happen but all the things that could potentially go wrong. Um, there's lots of people who sort of feel strongly about you know not telling you everything but informed consent is about understanding that there may be a one percent risk of something really adversely going wrong and you need to know about it because we know when those things do happen if you haven't been told that's a potential risk then in fact you know it's it's Well, you know, there's not much you can do about it at that point in time. Um, I mean, it's hard because if it's a one in a hundred risk, lots of people would just go, oh, I'm not going to worry about it. Um, But it's that whole thing about understanding what those things are before you put something in your body.
0: Uh, If practitioners aren't really being upfront about the risks of the procedure that someone is undergoing, is that being driven by wanting the person to go through with the procedure and to make some money off it?
2: Oh, look, I think it, there's a whole lot of um, sort of drivers about it. Sometimes it's that the person who's actually doing it doesn't understand what informed consent is nor the, their obligations to it. Um, it's Part of that is that sort of blurred boundary between what has been deemed non-medical procedures that's now moving into the medical practitioner side of things. Mm. So you might have gone to a beautician for a facial and, you know, some other bits and pieces. And now that beautician has started doing medical-type work, including injectables, versus then the medical practitioner who might be doing something that's even more prescription only, where is that blurred boundary start between it being a person who's not necessarily trained in being a medical practitioner yet is doing something that is now seen as being a
0: medical practitioner um, role? Well, I do want to ask you about that because this crackdown doesn't appear to be addressing what has been raised as a significant issue before, which is that there are some doctors and nurses performing these procedures that probably aren't trained to be. Is that concerning?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, again, this is about trying to bring in some regulations about what training you need to have done in order to be able to do those procedures so then you understand what things you need to be consenting people for, but also too that you're doing it appropriately, Um, you know what best practice is, you get adequate clinical, what I call clinical supervision as your training so that you are actually really expert before your Um, doing it unsupervised.
0: Does there need to be more accreditation required before nurses and doctors can start performing procedures?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, it really, shall we say, nurses and doctors aren't necessarily so much of a problem for me um, because nurses and doctors at least have got a very good, solid background training. I think the specific problem is when there have been people doing these procedures who are not actually um, nurses or doctors, That's and that's where we get some of that blurred boundaries. But absolutely, for I think nurses and doctors to take this up as an industry that they are earning money from, I think they need to demonstrate that they've been trained um, and they know all of the the ins and outs of that particular procedure before marketing. Well, you know, they shouldn't even be marketing it, but before actually doing it as part of their practice.
0: You mentioned marketing just there. Another issue that's been raised by ARPA is social media advertising in the industry. I mean, would you like to see any change in that space as well that hasn't been mentioned?
2: Well, I think that's that's the from our perspective. Again, it's about trying to make sure that there is no... Um, inappropriate social media marketing of these things interestingly one of my colleagues did an audit of all of the new south wales practices that were doing any of these cosmetic non-surgical procedures and it's incredibly unregulated and there's an awful lot of what i would call inappropriate advertising and marketing certainly through social media that definitely needs to be regulated because um, not only is it it sort of again crosses what I would call the boundary of when you're advertising versus saying what you're doing, um, and you know how people can access it, but it sort of um, makes it look far more you know easy. And, you know, this is something you really must do and is, you know, you can't be a young, beautiful person unless you're actually having some of these procedures done. Mm.
3: We've
0: got some texts coming through. Someone says, I'm a GP and unfortunately I see complications of Botox and injectables all the time when they're done by inexperienced practitioners. Then they're told to follow up at their GP and we have to fix the problem. Is that a big issue among doctors as well, having to fix these mistakes?
2: Oh, you know that's exactly why as the 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 college of GPs we we're out there campaigning to say these things need to be regulated because we while they continue to be poorly regulated with people not trained doing them um absolutely we get to see the bad side of it all the time <laughs> um i don't like to see young people having things that they think was just an easy um procedure that had no risks Having some terrible, terrible, long-term, um, debilitating consequences.
0: And do you think that the you know, as part of the Royal Australian College of GPS, that Upper is moving fast enough on this, or are they a little bit behind the curve?
2: Oh look, um, it would be nice if there was a little bit more speed, but I'm but we're look, we're really pleased that there has been some movement. I mean, as I said, for me and for the college. Patient safety is our number one um, priority and so we really can't get them to move fast enough from my perspective to make sure that all of those complaints that you talked about um, having happened didn't happen. Um, I think any adverse event out of somebody being inappropriately trained or supported or supervised and people not knowing about what it is that they're doing is a much better outcome.
0: All right, Charlotte Hespie, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Hack. Thank you, Tim. That was Professor Charlotte Hespie from the New South Wales and ACT Royal Australian College of DPs talking about new rules meant to crack down on dodgy cosmetic procedures. And a few texts coming in about this one still. Someone says their name is Ash and they've had Botox in their forehead about three times. Ever since I've had Botox, I've had skin issues, weird nerve spasms and insane hair fallout. I had no idea the serious adverse reactions. Someone else says people have too much trust in the medical profession. If doctors were perfect, there wouldn't be hundreds of lawyers representing people over medical negligence claims in Australia every year. All right, it's time to move on. Hack. It's usually the same as you could get it for a brand new. It's not really a good price.
3: This might be one of my best thrift hauls. Those are Prada.
0: On Triple Jack. Secondhand shopping is more popular than ever, right? People want to look after the environment by reusing clothes and they want to look cool while doing it. But it's meant that with all these vintage shops, secondhand sellers on Facebook Marketplace, apps like Depop, there's a lot of competition out there. And prices are going up, even in op shops, the places where we give away our clothes for free to be sold on. And that's created a problem for some people who shop at places like Lifeline, Vinnies, The Salvation Army, because they're affordable. What do you think about all this? Have you seen any really expensive items in a charity shop lately? Do you think op shops should be raising prices or keeping them low? Message us on 0439 well Joe Lauder's been out trying to answer some of those questions.
1: As I walk into DuoP uh, through our front door, I first see our concept rack, which is very Barbie inspired with pink, white and denim. Barbie is huge at the moment and our customers are absolutely loving it. We also have some great shoes. Um, some real vintage bags and um, winter accessories, coats. We've got a boot wall with some mid-length and ankle boots in all different colours. Uh, I can see a large vintage Mr Potato Head and a vintage Game Boy in the cupboard. Nina Sands is the owner of the
4: Duop shop in Yangan, Brisbane. Before that, she worked in the charity space with other
5: op shops.
1: I guess I started doop uh, because I saw a gap where the opportunity shop has sort of changed and I wanted something that was a really a community hub. People could come, um, whether they were donating or an op shopper or a volunteer or a staff member and just uh, have fun basically it. <laughs> Back in
4: the day, op shops might have had a stigma around them because they were seen as places where you shopped if you couldn't afford new clothes. But that's changed and secondhand shopping has gone mainstream.
1: It's really changed from people that just couldn't afford the great stuff uh, very, uh, to a younger market. They just love that fashion. Uh, Before you'd go to Westfield and you'd love to have uh, a range of clothes that all mixed and colour-coded and you would just pick that. Now people just love to create their own style. Sense of style is huge. I think TikTok really brought that on. The other reason is because of the environmental impact of fashion, according
4: to Jason Laufer from the Australian Red Cross.
6: We are seeing this emerging trend of younger demographics coming into the shop and actually looking for great bargains, but because of sustainable reasons as well as their balance sheet.
4: Charity shops do a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to stopping waste from ending up in landfill, according to an industry report.
5: In 2020, charitable recycling helped divert over 1 million tonnes of waste from landfill. That's around 39 kilos per person per year.
4: According to a report from Charitable Recycling, only about 16% of clothes that are donated are actually sold in shops, with about a third getting exported. That all takes a lot of work and
6: money. If things that are donated to us that aren't unsellable... We therefore need to find a way to recycle and discard of those. And obviously that takes time, resource and money from Red Cross that could be going towards helping those most vulnerable in society. And
4: in the last year, there's been some criticism about the prices at op shops.
3: Is anyone else getting completely over Australian thrift store prices these days and how they just charge an arm and a leg for absolutely everything? So is it true? Well, the peak organisation,
4: Charitable Recycling, says the average price for items at op shops across the board is 5 bucks.
6: Yeah, we get asked a lot about how we price, and our goods are priced to ensure they represent good value for both our customers and donors. Uh, we know that our generous donors who provide us with quality goods expect their donated goods to be appropriately priced. I think what's interesting is that the average price paid per item at our Red Cross retail store is $8.58. So it gives you an idea about how we sort approximately price
4: another interesting point to think about is around the role of op shops because for major charities the retail shops are there to raise money for their charity work jason says another reason why prices might have increased is because, well, everything's
6: increased. Yeah, I think it's probably been slightly overstated. Um, I think with the rising cost of living that we're seeing, uh, people are feeling the pinch. you notice that all industries are you know being accused of actually prices going up and somewhat, and the cost of living just generally is going up.
1: I guess the expectation of an op shop is that it should be cheap and, and a bargain for people in need, but the person that's in need is, they can come in and they can ask for it.
4: Talking to Nina and Jason and others for this story, there's one thing that's come up a lot, and that's the role of resellers. Because secondhand shopping is so much more popular now, and sites like Etsy and Facebook Marketplace and Depop have exploded, it means there are a lot of resellers who make a living out of finding cheap bargains at op shops and then selling them for more. It's called flipping. One person in the industry who didn't want to talk said it's often resellers who complain about the higher prices. Nina says these sites and the popularity of
1: secondhand shopping has changed the whole secondhand ecosystem. Depop and thrift stores, I think that their prices are really high and I don't think they get as much negative aspect than op shops. I think people come into op shops and they feel like oh, I should have a bargain because it's an op shop. But that op shop environment's changed. and the volunteer, like here, our volunteers, they're more savvy. They've all got phones, they've got Google View. They can Google something now and see what it sells for. Where as a as a charity op shop, we're actually on Depop and we're on eBay. You're listening to hack on Triple J.
0: Thank you to Joe Lauder for trying to get to the bottom of that one. and it's really divided the text line, a lot of people texting in. Someone says, I've seen a fur coat at Vinnies for over $300 in Sydney. Absolutely ridiculous for something that's been given away from free. That was from Eleanor. Someone else says, sick of seeing cheap clothes on the racks for the price more than what we would have paid in store. Now, I want to actually bring someone in who's got a bit of experience in this. Veronica from Queensland, you actually manage an op shop. Is that right?
3: Yeah, I do. Hey, Tim.
0: Hey, um, I want to ask you, like, what's been your experience when people come in and they see some of the prices that have been advertised?
3: Well, normally it's a really positive experience. We have customers from all walks of life, so there's something for everyone. Um, we work really hard within the community to make sure that we have prices that are accessible, um, but we do, we do find aggression if someone finds one of the, you know more pricey items um, before they see the other things that are still available.
0: How do you go about setting the prices when something comes in and has been donated? Do you actually look up what you think it could go for somewhere else and then use that to determine it?
3: We do. We absolutely do. And, you know, whether it's a highly sought-after vintage item or if it's brand new with tags, we'll always look at the price, find the lowest price for it going for and do about a third of that price. So it's still far below it could sell for um, as a resale item online. Um, we make it available for people who are doing that and we load them. You know, like, that's fabulous. We We want everyone to you know, participate in um, thrift shopping. We want, yeah. we want to make money for our charity and yeah, yeah, we try really hard.
0: Right, exactly. So the money then goes on to help people in need. Thank you for calling in, Veronica. Absolutely. That was no really, worries. really helpful. And yeah, a lot of people texted in. Someone also says that, you know, uh, the op shops also have to deal with raising, you know, increasing bills and rent as well. And that's where the money's going. Someone else says, I blame Macklemore. The numbers don't lie. All right, time to move on.
7: Hack, we just want to create a space where
0: boys can play netball and change that landscape. On Triple Jack. Yeah, look, if you're anything like me, then over the years you've struggled to find ways to exercise or make friends as an adult. And a lot of people now are turning to social sports. And one that's had a huge boost in popularity recently is netball. More guys are looking to play in mixed comps, and there's even a growing number of men's-only teams as well. Is this you? Maybe you've tried it but didn't like it maybe you don't like having to play against guys who are a lot bigger and maybe taking it too seriously. Let me know. Text in on 0439 757555. I want to know what you think because some advocates say that growing men's netball will actually benefit the entire sport. Well, our North Queensland reporter and our favourite goal shooter, Angel Parsons, has this story.
5: So it's our weekly game night and the team is pumped. If not very organised.
6: So I don't want to go, girls. I go win D. I can't shoot up.
5: I can't shoot. We just play in a mixed comp at our local indoor court in Mackay. D again. It's just social, but still, it can get pretty hectic and fast-paced. I, I didn't feel well. <laughs> <laughs> Those boys can jump high.
7: Yeah, getting there. Oh, yeah. I'm loving
6: fight. it. Really tough <laughs> game.
5: <laughs> Sam team captain, you organise the team. Have you found that it's easier to get players together and actually find men who are keen to play? Uh, I've
0: definitely noticed a a spike in interest from men, not just in my team, but in general.
5: I ask you guys, like, why do you play mixed as opposed to all girls? Because they're really tall and it's really easy just to lob it up (laughs) and then they catch it and get the goal. (laughs) We've got a six foot (laughs) eleven man named Josh on the team. Josh, um, why do you play netball? Is it because of your obvious disadvantages? Yeah,
8: yeah, that's also fun. But yeah, it's just it's a good fun game, and it's always got a nice social aspect to it. I've got two sisters, and they played netball growing up, so I always played against them in the backyard. Someone who
5: also grew up playing against his sisters is WA team Toby Fountain.
0: You know, heaps of people play up in Karatha. We've got four men's teams, um, a huge mixed comp, so, yeah, it's pretty big.
5: But he's currently gearing up to represent Australia.
0: I really didn't like netball when I was growing up. I thought it was really slow. Um, But now there are so many opportunities, especially for the boys and the men's
8: um, in that elite pathway.
5: Toby's from Karatha and got selected into the under-17 men's Australian netball team heading to New Zealand this month. But 18 months ago, Toby hadn't even played a game of competitive netball. Young guys like him are breaking some pretty strong barriers in trying to show there is a place for men and boys in the
0: sport. It's definitely for everyone. There's pathways everywhere, and they're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger.
5: And this growth is happening across small towns in social comps
7: right up to the elite level. Changes to social attitudes around gender and sport has shifted immensely. I spoke with Stephen Kerr. He's the president
5: of the Queensland Suns Men's and Mixed Netball Association. He says after more than a decade of closed doors and limited progress in trying to make men's netball more legit, things really have turned a corner in recent years.
7: It's really an interesting intersection to be at because men playing netball was always almost like this toy thing. It was almost like this, not secret thing, but it was almost like scoffed at, you know what I mean? It wasn't taken very seriously, but that has changed and not just because of social attitudes but because there's money in it for nipple.
5: But promoting men's inclusion in the sport has been kind of complicated.
7: nepal has been able to create a product uniquely for women, created by women for women, you know what I mean? It's created safe spaces for women over the years that in given often women opportunities that other sports probably wouldn't have given them. So it's Nepal for a lot of women is more than just a sport. It's, it's, it's something that's... A safe space.
5: But Stephen reckons men's inclusion will be super crucial for the sport's future, both in terms of financial success and new pathways like getting into the Olympics.
7: All of those really high pinnacle things they want to offer their athletes cannot go forward without the inclusion of men and women playing the sport and having them both visible on TV.
5: And that visibility on telly finally happened in a huge way last year when the Australian men's team played New Zealand in televised curtain raises for the Diamonds for the first time ever.
7: Well, like there's a lot of boys out in the regional areas that are playing nipple, which is great. And I think um, they feel like no one else, they feel alone or they they feel isolated from it. So it just creates that opportunity to show them that there is a pathway, that it is not a sport to be taken lightly. It is a a competitive and tough sport. And just because you didn't know about it or didn't see it before, it's actually there. Hack on Triple J.
0: Angel Parsons with that story and a big thanks to the ABC Pilbara team for contributing as well. Well, we just heard how last year the Aussie men's team made history by touring with the Diamonds and they've actually just hard launched their new nickname, the Kelpies. And the Kelpies captain, Dylan Nexip, is with us now. Dylan, welcome to Hack. Thank you for having me. Look, what do you love about netball?
8: Oh, there's so much um, that I love about netball. I've been playing um, since I was a little kid. But now being in this environment, um, you know, you you build friends for life. And I think that's one of the most important things about sport, that enjoyment factor, the social factor. But is such a fast-paced sport. You get on that court, you're going 100 miles an hour. Um, it's hard work, it's competitive, it's tactical. I think there's so many elements um, to the sport that just makes it so, so great to be part of.
0: And how much has the men's game grown recently? Are we close to seeing maybe some new leagues or some representative teams?
8: Yeah, it's um, continuing to grow day by day and we're seeing that um, all across Australia in different states. Um, majority of the states now have a, a men's competition that runs at different periods throughout the season. Um And obviously with what happened last year with our international tour, um, I continue to see the growth of men's netball. Ideally, we'd love to see it keep growing. And um, I don't think there's any reason why we can't have a professional league within the next few years. Um And that's definitely something that we're aiming for.
0: Yeah, I mean, some people might be thinking, you know, you know, there are so many other sports where men sort of dominate. Shouldn't women just be able to have this one? I mean, what do you think about that?
8: Yeah, I definitely think there's that side to it. But I think sports um, should be inclusive for all. I think we're at a stage now where it's such in a digital world that's dominated by tech. And if there's opportunity for people to be out there playing sport, no matter what sport it is, I think we should be breaking down those barriers um, and enabling that to happen.
0: Um, we heard in our story earlier that you know, like bringing men into the game, you know, could probably benefit all players in all competitions. I mean, do you think that's true?
8: A hundred percent. I think you look at the growth of AFL, you know, you've got AFL and AFLW that work alongside each other. You've got NRL, NRLW, you've seen the success of the Tillies and, and all of that that's been happening. I think netball's in a space now where it can kind of harness some of those strategies that have been put out there in those frameworks and and have men's netball and and, and female netball run um, alongside each other. Like I imagine, you know, in a couple of years' time how awesome it would be for a netball um, viewer to go down and be able to watch the New South Wales Swifts men's team and then watch the New South Wales Swifts women's team. I think that would just be amazing and, um, yeah, I definitely think there's scope for that.
0: This is Hack on Triple J. You're hearing from Dylan Nexip, who's the captain of the Aussie men's netball team, the Kelpies. And we're talking about the rise in men playing netball. A bit of love coming through, Dylan. Someone says that you're their idol and uh, you influence them to play. So congratulations there. Look, there might be some people who are a bit worried about men jumping in the netball bandwagon because it has been one of the few sports that's been female-led and it's a safe space for women. Like I've played social sport and I've seen some dudes get a little bit too into it and, you know, pushing the women around on court. is like what advice would you have for any guys who are wanting to play?
8: Yeah, I think my first piece of advice is learn the rules. I think netball um, is hard to kind of engage with if you don't know the rules. So, when you get out there and you're playing, once you get a grasp on the game and you know the rules, you know what you can do, you know what you can get away with. Um, and I think just understand your why for, well, you know, why you're there. Are you there to have fun? Are you there for whatever reason it is? And just make sure that you kind of remember that. Um, and, you know, like I said, netball's fun. So, just enjoy every moment that you have to, to play the sport.
0: Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's worth remembering that you are in a social league, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, I want to ask, you know, what's the end goal? Do you want to see netball make it into the Olympics for Brisbane 2032?
8: Absolutely. I think, you know, the end goal is just for netball to keep growing. And I think before that needs to happen, having that, that professional league in, in Australia would be amazing. Um, a men's professional league and, you know, giving access to that platform that for, for the athletes um, who have been working away so hard behind the scenes. You know, we work full-time, we train full-time, and then we take any opportunity that we have to play the sport. So I think, you know, progressing and, and seeing the, the 2032 Olympics as a goal, um, having a Kelpies team there would be, you know, would be amazing and it's definitely something to strive towards.
0: How long, just quickly, we are running out of time, but like what do you think it would take to see netball make it into those Olympics?
8: We need um, a sponsor, um, the men's side. We need someone that's going to be the change agent in our sport that's going to back us and, and take uh, enable us to take that you know, our sport to the next level and we need a financial backer there. And once we get that up and running, um, we need to continue to grow netball as a global sport. And once that happens, I think netball has every opportunity of getting into the Olympics. All
0: right. And just quickly, last question, Dylan, can we put you down as a fill-in for our station team triple slay? I will have to ask
8: my coach and I'm sure
0: she will (laughs) say yes, so count me in. All right. That's all the time we've got. Thank you so much for coming on to Hack Dylan. Uh, Looking forward to seeing you on the court sometime, maybe in the future.
8: Perfect. Thank you so much. That
0: was the captain of the Aussie men's netball team, the Kelpies, Dylan Nexip. And that's all for Hack. I'll be back tomorrow. See you then. Hack on Triple Jack.